It's the year 2015, and Drift, a chatbot for sales and marketing teams, enters the crowded world of marketing SaaS. Drift is well capitalized to run the standard playbook of SaaS. Build product, get early customers, pour money into tried and tested sales and marketing engines, and then rinse and repeat. But the CEO, a five-time founder, does not want Drift to be another me-too drop in the ocean of MarTech. He wants to build a new standout category and to build a moat around the company from day zero to own this new category. How can he run the same playbook and expect to get outsized results in a space with thousands of other well-funded competitors? What would you do if you were the CEO of Drift? Welcome to the Mavens of Change podcast. I'm your host, Kunal Sarda, and our guest today is David Cancel, CEO of Drift, the world's leading conversational marketing and sales platform that helps businesses engage with customers who are ready to buy now. To date, Drift has raised $107 million from some of the best firms like Sequoia, General Catalyst, CRV, and HubSpot, to name a few. David, welcome, and thanks so much for making the time to chat with me today. Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. Uh, lots of interesting stuff to talk about. I need to ask you a very important question before we get started. Drift mm-hmm. was actually the very first service I purchased upon launching my new business a few months ago. Mm-hmm. There are still days when I need to log into my website and message myself from the box and make sure it's working because no one else is messaging me. Mm-hmm. I thought I was supposed to be rolling in sales when I installed Drift. Where are my buyers, David? <laughs> Where are your buyers? You need to find them. Yeah, well, I think I'll have a lot to learn about marketing from what we're about to talk about here. So mm-hmm. let's get going. Now, before we dive into the story of how you changed the marketing landscape at Drift, I'd love yeah. to start with your own personal story of change leading up to how you found a Drift. You've got the best Note version of origin story. Son of a first-generation immigrant turned 5X founder, all businesses acquired. Boom. But can we take a few minutes to unpack this a little bit? Oh my goodness. It's so far from from that narrative. I never wanted to be an entrepreneur. My parents immigrated here. I was raised by my mom, only spoke Spanish, taught myself how to speak English, watching TV. But in terms of entrepreneur, until halfway into my career, it wasn't even a word that anyone used. You know, I would say entrepreneur was code for loser, can't get a job (laughs) for at least half my career. And so it was not something that you wanted to say. Yeah, David, you definitely started as an entrepreneur before the word entrepreneurship was sexy. I want to go back to the first business that you founded in 2000, which was called Compete, which is a marketing intelligence company. Two questions here. First is that you started this company right as the dot-com bubble was bursting. (laughs) Was this planned or was this an accident to be starting a company at such an ominous time? It was an accident and uh, a history of bad timing. I will say that you know, in retrospect, it was probably decent timing, but it, w- it was painful. And, if, you know, that company we sold in 2007, if we had started the company in 2004, 4 to 07 would have been straight rocket ship, you know, up into the yeah. right. 00 through 04 were the hardest uh, days of my life professionally. It took me that long to figure out that the most important question that you have to ask yourself as an entrepreneur or someone who creates products or things or services is why now? Why now start this company? And I didn't ask that question, obviously, then. And I didn't ask it for probably two or three more companies after that. And I finally learned the hard way through pain and suffering to ask that question. Yeah, I definitely want to come back to the why now as it relates to drifts. But you also have talked previously about the three innings of SaaS. 
Mm-hmm. And the first inning being using tech stack as a moat. And yeah. the second inning being business process as a moat. I imagine SaaS at the time of Compete was definitely in the first innings in 2000, <laughs> which is tech stack as a moat. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like being a SaaS buyer and seller in a world where tech stack was seen as a competitive advantage that in hindsight feels the most different from what it's like today? Oh, it's radically different. There were fun things from from a company building standpoint in that everything was undefined. Back then and the company I did before that, I always describe as like we were like pirates. If you ever seen old footage of when Apple was started in the Homebrew Computing Club and Bill Gates, you know, writing basic, like that whole thing. This was our version of that you know, with the internet, right? Commercializing the internet. It was like, there was nothing. There were no books. There were no, obviously Google didn't exist. There was no way to search access information. There wasn't no, there was no Reddit. There was no, like, you could not figure out how to do this stuff. So for all of us, we were just making things up. We would read specifications, if anyone knows that. And, um, you know, RFCs from the worldwide consortium that was defining the protocols. And then we would actually try to reverse engineer and figure out how to build some of these things and how to build on top of these protocols. And so it was a very, very, very different time. On the go-to-market side as a builder, it was very difficult because you had to convince people to take this huge leap from what they were doing today that was safe, which was hosted software inside of their own servers, their own machines, their own offices, their own networks to actually trust in this thing called the cloud. We didn't have the the acronym SaaS. We would get thrown out of companies all the time with famous last lines like, no one will ever buy anything but books online. No one's ever going to put a credit card online. No business user will ever use hosted software. That makes for good stories now. It wasn't, it didn't feel that good been going through it. Yeah. Double whammy hard. of needing to build SaaS as a category and then needing to explain what yeah. you did as a SaaS company must have been incredibly... And figure, figure out how to even build it in the first place. But that created a moat. Collectively, that created a moat. And that moat was once you got people over that hurdle, and it was a high hurdle. Uh, once you got over that, it was harder for other entrants to come in and replicate what you were doing. So Compete gets acquired seven years later, and then you go on and start and scale three other companies to acquisition. During this process, though, David, you go from being a CTO to CEO for the first time. Mm-hmm. David, what's the biggest change you've had to make in your management style and skill set in making this transition from a technology leader to a company leader? And what mm. was the most challenging in hindsight? Yeah, this has been the, the hardest thing that I've ever gone through, but it's the most important to move from an, a CTO, a builder, a creator of things to become uh, you know, someone who leads people and builds teams. I learned the hard way that I used to think that it was 99% product, you know, coming from my own ego, my own selfish perspective of, and coming from a world where technology was really the moat. So in that world, it was like the product was everything. Can you build this thing? And then you move fast forward to like technology is like commoditized. Anyone in the world can copy anything from a technology standpoint. The second phase was the business model innovation moat. In that second phase, when I was at Performable and then later HubSpot and companies like Zendesk were created and many others like business model was a moat. No one knew what LTVD CAC was. We would have meetings with people at Dropbox and SurveyMonkey and, you know, Zendesk and all these things. And we'd be trying to figure out like, how do you do inside sales? How do you do pay? Yeah. What's payback? How do you calculate that until that information became free? That also can be copied anywhere. Everyone knows what LTV to CAC is. They know what payback periods are. They know inside sales versus outside. They know freemium versus non product like growth, blah, 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 blah. They know all these things. 
And so now it's all about the third phase, which is now it's not technology. It's not any of that stuff. You have to lead people. You have to build a brand. You have to have buyer affinity and a closeness to the buyer in order to stand out. Yeah, so it sounds like the evolution of SaaS as a field itself had to force you to evolve as an executive. So let's fast forward to your last business, Performable, which you end up selling to HubSpot, where you become the chief product officer and help scale Mm -hmm. the business to IPO. What role did this three-year pit stop at HubSpot have in changing your worldview as a founder Mm and how you looked at opportunities and viewed your role as an executive? Did it change the scale of your aspirations in any way, seeing Uh. a company go public? 100%. It totally opened my perspective of even thinking that I was capable of building a public company, whatever public, you know, is defined as, as an enduring company versus selling companies, which is what I had done historically. My whole career has been this because I didn't have access to information and, and mentors and role models in the way that we do today. My whole career has been this series of, I would say like I was the Forrest Gump of this. I just would stumble into new peer groups and basically emulate and learn from them and then figure out like, oh, I can do this. I can build a company from zero to 50. Okay, now I'm around these other people. I can build from 50 to 200. I can, I'd have a spot I get there around 200 people. I can build 200 to 1200. It basically gave me permission to say, I can do that too. I also learned a lot of things from a cultural standpoint and from a system standpoint, specifically in marketing and and sales, where marketing and sales were the strongest parts of HubSpot at the time. You know, I learned and watched them and that helped me in my own thinking and starting Drift so much so that now people, you know, when they talk to me, they're like, they think that I'm a marketer. I never did marketing until Drift. The compounding effect of success that makes yes. you believe you can you can do bigger. One other thing you said in there, which is stumbling across things. So let's talk about that. You exit HubSpot and you start your fifth business in 2015, Drift. Yeah. And this brings us to the story of change. Let's first talk about the gas in the tank. Mm-hmm. David, I'm on my second business and I tell my wife, I wish I had the experience of a second time founder, but also the naive optimism <laughs> and energy of the first time founder. I honestly can't imagine getting to number five unless I've stumbled upon some massive insight that keeps me up at night. Mm-hmm. What's the insight you have at this point that makes you believe <laughs> Drift is going to be worth doing this the fifth time? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I always say that, you know, you start one company, it's naive, that's okay. You start two companies, which you're on now, questionable. <laughs> Three or more certifiable. So I'm in the certifiable <laughs> camp, right? There's something obviously wrong. There's a missing piece. There's something I'm trying to make right. There's a hole somewhere. I haven't identified what. I will say one thing. Having gone through that first year and a half of finding product market fit and scaling it, I was like, I am never doing this again. So this thing better count. This is I am never. This is it. That is too hard. And uh, I'm done. Done, done, done. Record that. You Just heard it here too, first, folks. <laughs> way too hard. I didn't know I wanted to start in that company when we, before we started Drift. But I was obsessed with looking at trends in the market, how behavior change is happening because of all the scar tissue that I have in starting companies. And that led me to conclude in starting Drift, or at least to have a hypothesis that shift had had happened, at least in business buying, of moving from a company vendor-driven world to a buyer-centric world. And in that model, my thought is and was that everything that we had built before had to be rebuilt because it led to this vendor-centric perspective on the market that made it, at the end, an awful buying experience. And now we had to fix that. That's really what what drove us. 
You just mentioned a big trend of the leverage moving from the seller to the buyer and re-architecting mm-hmm. the, the buying experience to account for this. And you previously talked about the trend of real-time communication being another major reason for doing these. And these are some mega changes that you've observed. But yeah. one of the things I haven't heard you talk about often enough is what hasn't changed much, which is the highly strained and dysfunctional relationship between sales and marketing at mm-hmm. many, many companies. Mm-hmm. A lot has been written about this. But how are you reading this as a trend in 2015? Are you seeing this as an ongoing trend that is going to be a problem for Drift to scale? Or is it improving where it's becoming an opportunity for Drift to leverage? I think it's it's still a problem, but it is an opportunity. I think the first time I described this, I was speaking at an event right in the beginning, early days. And what I described was like that we had reached peak insanity of like all these people sitting in a room being marketing, driving all these people to a website, which is where you drive them to, with all these channels and instrumenting and using a million tools and doing all that stuff and all these sales team and inside and outside and this and that. And they're driving all these people to the website. These people on the other side being the salespeople are saying marketing sucks and marketing doesn't give any leads. These people continue to use more channels, drive more leads. And at the end of the day, thinking like, look, if you have a sales team, you have never sold anything until you start a conversation. Why don't you just talk to the people who are interested coming to see the thing that you're talking about, that you're advertising? Because all of you are in B2B. This is not my daughter is 15. She's not coming to your B2B website. These are actually people that must be either existing customers or must be somewhat interested in this category because there's too much of you know, competition for our time these days to go waste time sitting on some B2B website. And I saw immediately in the crowd, and this doesn't happen often, at least to me, the light bulb, boom, 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 boom. Like everyone was like, wait a second. At that moment, people were like, why don't we talk to them? And, you know, we use that to create like a story around, look, think about your website as a store. Imagine walking in a store. There's no one in the store. There's nowhere to buy anything. There's no one who will talk to you. And you have to leave your name, phone number, email address, and title, and 50 other things on a form. And then leave the store and then get a bunch of things in the mail. And then one day, David will call you back and say, a week later, a month later, three months later, hey, we'd love to sell you something. You want to come to the store? Yeah, <laughs> so Drift is definitely starting to sound like the bridge that reduces the divide between sales mm-hmm. and marketing for sure. Mm-hmm. And part of the massive trend that you're seeing that are tailwinds for you to build a chatbot that allows marketers mm-hmm. and sales to interact in real time with buyers. But chatbots are already a thing in 2015. Weren't they? Granted, the use case for chatbots for sales wasn't quite explored, but it's not like you didn't have competition. So my question for you here is, how did you convince yourself and investors that chatbot company X cannot build a sales chatbot (laughs) with workflows and own the space instead of Drip? That's the typical question someone asks. Why can't Google build this instead of you? Sure, sure. That's the question everyone will ask. Well, and the truth is, if big company XYZ could totally change their business model on a dime to address new entrants or new opportunities all the time, then there would never be a startup ever created. And the the reason that startups only exist is because actually that's impossible. Not from a theoretical standpoint, obviously, not from a system standpoint, it's just from a human incentives standpoint is actually impossible. It just comes down to human incentives. And so like they are incented towards their business model. Many Many people have written about this. When we started, no one at any scale that we had seen uh, had used website chat for sales. There was endless entrance my entire career, 20 plus years of companies who had used it in a support context. Why? 
not because they had never thought of using it in a sales context. People try to bend and move and try to use it in a sales context before, but it always failed because of the human incentive part, both on the buyer and the seller side. On the seller side, the minute a salesperson gets something that's not a qualified lead and it's some support thing, they say, I'm never using this thing again. Don't make me use this thing again. I'm wasting my time. That's why I cannot sell. That is actually what happens. On the consumer side of things, when they come in, they have a sales question. If this thing's only available nine to five, business days, no holidays, no weekends, whatever, it's not convenient for them. Two, at the time before 2015, what we thought, if you looked at the market from from a macro trend standpoint, was that chat was still weird. It was still a weird thing because we were not yet on a global scale, messaging everyone in our lives. We were still in a phone call world, email-driven world. Chat was a fringe thing for nerds like me to use, whether it was IRC chat or website chat or whatever. And that's why I was relegated to support, right? Mm. And so we looked at that and said, no one had done it yet. We had tried many times in the past. And then we said, what were the problems? Unless you've been immersed in this, you don't really see this. You think this is a simple problem because you don't understand the human incentives on both sides of the equation. Yeah, knowing the sales and marketing persona and their day-to-day is mm-hmm. not something that a chatbot serving support could have really come up with. Nope. So, so you raised $15 million basically on day zero to yep. start building Drift. But instead of being heads down on building Drift, the product, you plan to index on building brand day zero, even mm-hmm. before you have a product on the market. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Correct. 100%. The common saying is that there's a natural sequence to B2B marketing. You start with product marketing, you do demand gen, and then you build a mini brand on existing Mm -hmm. customers. Mm -hmm. Why did you think building a brand even before launching a product was the right strategy for Drift? What other companies had you seen be successful at doing this back in 2015? Zero in B2B. Zero. And that's why from the very beginning, I said we had zero models that came from our world. We did not look at anyone in our world and say, we want to replicate that model because zero people had done it. And it wasn't because they weren't smart enough, capable, none of those things, right? It wasn't that we had some unique talent. It was because they were started in a different time where what you outlined, that sequence was 100% true because that was a vendor-centric world. Buyer-centric world, which was what we thought we were moving to, is very different. That's a, that's a world where all I care about and all I know and my only reference points are the things that I use every day in my own personal life. Yeah. The other thing that changed in the macro that we have been talking a lot in our world in software and enterprise for a long time was that the consumerization of the enterprise had finally happened. We talked about that for at least 12 years. And we kept saying, it's happening, it's happening, it's happening. That's when it really happened. That's when everyone, because of proliferation of SaaS, almost everyone in your company bought something. So everyone was a buyer, right? I came from a world, and those rules were defined in a world where centralized buying. Very few people make buying decisions. And we saw over the years that buying started to spread within the organization up until now where I don't even know what people buy at Drift. I have no idea. Why that matters is we saw the rise of the non-professional buyer. The non-professional buyer inside the company has no reference points. They don't think that what you described there and the whole procurement uh, approach that we had in the past, they don't even know what that is. And if you described it to them, they would think you were insane. So they expect an experience, a buying experience that looks like uh, the buying experience I have on my phone. When I order Uber or I have DoorDash, I use Amazon. That's the only experience I have. These were the things that back to the beginning of why now? What's the context right now when you're starting a company? 
So it sounds like Drift almost needed to be an innovator in marketing to market to this new kind of buyer before being an innovative product. Yes. So let's talk a bit about your marketing strategy in the early sure. days. You said that, quote, marketing is all about chasing arbitrage in A, new channels that no one has exploited, and B, things that are hard to measure. Mm-hmm. I have questions on this. Question number one. What were the channels you were seeing in 2015 that were available for marketing arbitrage? And why do you think this arbitrage existed and that others weren't going after them? I will back up and say, I do agree with that and I'll explain that. But marketing to me is more than that. Marketing is really understanding how people make decisions. It's about human decision making. And the thing that I spend a lot of time now trying to understand is how do people make decisions? Why do they make Mm -hmm. decisions? What are the biases that we have in decisions? How do those things get influenced? That's marketing. It's also selling. If you don't understand that, then you don't understand marketing. Marketing is not channels. It's not optimization of channels. It's not conversion rate optimization. It's not social strategy. It's not blah, 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 any of these things. It's about human needs and human decision-making and then trying to understand that. In terms of tactics from a demand generation standpoint, because of the context that the world was in at that point, still is, marketers were born in a world, a digital world where everything could be perfectly measurable. Everything was perfectly scalable, right? And in those worlds, they were incented, they were patted on the back, the more that they spent on perfectly measurable channels. So every dollar could be measured. What that meant was that they would ignore, and the means that today, they ignore channels that are not either at scale or are easy to measure. So if they're hard to measure, they ignore them. If they're not at scale yet, so the addressable market is small, they kind of ignore those channels. Therefore, that is where the arbitrage is. That's why you see all the early winners. If you look at who are the early AdWords you know, users, who are the early Facebook ads, who are the early IG ads, all those people, like they disproportionately won in the early days because the arbitrage was there, because no yep. one wanted to pay attention to it. And I said, you know, if you're a marketer and you're only looking for these perfectly scalable, perfectly um, measurable things, then arbitrage in that system has been worked out. It's gone. There's very little. You can find little niches in here and there, but like you're chasing small little things. You're not chasing like exponential growth. And so you have to look for these weird channels. And that's what we did in the early days. We still do now just like, what are the things that nobody else is doing? Can we do those things in a way that helps us stand out? That doesn't make any sense that we may not know how to measure it, but we do think that it'll bring us closer to our customer in terms of communicating. Yeah, the arbitrage exists, like you said, because these channels are partly inherently difficult to measure. Mm-hmm. So you go after channels like LaunchBook on conversational marketing, when no one else is thinking about books, you'd like to yeah, we shipped the book. Yeah, we shipped the books. We still do. And we would do that and bring them in the office and do it by hand and ship them. And, I, and we wrote a book, again, physical book, which you can go to our website and do the things that don't scale, which was our yeah. like 52 marketing plays that we did in the early days that still are uh, largely effective today. All the things that any market in the world would look at any one of those 52 things and be like, doesn't scale, doesn't scale. And that was the answer to everything. Well, it doesn't scale, doesn't scale. No, the only thing that scales is human connection. That's the only thing that scales. These things that you can put, because you can put something in a Google spreadsheet doesn't mean that it scales. Yeah, I've definitely seen more and more companies copy the model of shipping physical books. But the question I have for you is, previously, you've said that marketers have lost the art of good copywriting and they've become Mm -hmm. too obsessed with measurement. Mm -hmm. But I also know that you're obsessed with creating feedback loops that allow you to measure, learn, and iterate. So Mm -hmm. so if these channels are so hard to measure in the early days, 
What were you doing and what were you measuring to create that feedback loop needed to make sure you weren't chasing dead ends mm-hmm. marketing channels? What's the North Star in these early days where you're shipping books and creating a brand where sales dollars and product are yet to catch up in the early days? Yeah, this was another example still is of like craziness in terms of marketing. You know, so people would say, they would ask me this question, well, how do you know that it's working? And I said, look, they're communicating to me. There's a conversation. They replied, Gunnar replied and said, look, right here. He just said this. And then I would show them endless conversations that I was having. Again, bias because we are, we're a conversation company, but it's like people are telling me. I'm communicating with them. They would listen to me and the market would listen. They'd nod their head and they'd be like, sure. And then they'd be like, how do you know it's working? I just told you, I'm having a conversation. It's the craziest thing that you're saying to me. You're saying because Google Analytics cannot pick this up, because I can't put in a spreadsheet that it is impossible to know if it's working. I'm talking to them. It's not that I'm doing these random things and I'm getting no signal. It might just be a signal that is not easy for you to put in a row and a cell in a thing and show like a little chart over it. But the most powerful thing in building relationship is the conversation. That is the thing. Yeah, totally. A very leading indicator of all the things like sales mm-hmm. dollars to follow, but definitely a strong indicator. That makes a lot of sense. And this brings me to number three, which is related to you being very deliberate about hiring, saying that all problems are people problems in mm-hmm. the end. So you take this very counter-positioning approach to marketing strategy here, and you want to do things that no one else is doing. Mm-hmm. So now you need to stack your team with people that are really good at doing things that no one else is doing. You can't really hire based on marketing experience here, because again, you'll get folks that talk about scaling. So mm-hmm. what are you doing, David, in hiring and onboarding in the early days to ensure you were bringing in people who were the right ones to chase this arbitrage? What mm-hmm. does hiring look like in these early days for these counter-positions? We spent a lot of time as a company, as founders, defining you know, what it is that we want from a principles standpoint. And principles, I use that word deliberately versus values in this, but like what are the principles that were near and dear for starting this company? We defined those, we taught those, we created onboarding, we created curriculum around it. Not just onboarding, curriculum, teaching, certif- those things have become so ingrained and so well taught internally that they've now become external certifications. We have thousands of people who have been certified on conversational marketing, conversational selling, virtual events, et cetera, et cetera. Those first started as curriculum internal to make sure that we were teaching people both largely in a video format, asynchronous video format, how we thought about things, how to, you know, how to create an event or do certain things in a world where there wasn't a playbook, you know, and how to find role models for the things that they were trying to do that were outside of the world that we, that we operate today. So really, we created to find this curriculum. And we did this when we were tiny as a company. If you look at it from a founder standpoint, you would think, this is, again, this doesn't scale. This doesn't make any sense. Why am I spending time doing this? But we were very deliberate about that because we knew we as founders, myself and Elias, we used to be in every single interview. And so we could... Uh, use the benefit of our thousands and thousands of interviews that we both have uh, done that has translated into pattern recognition, into a gut feeling that is hard to teach to a method and a system that we could teach other people on how to scale that. Yeah. So you spent a lot of time really honing your your onboarding engine to almost ingrain innovation into your hiring and onboarding. From a principle standpoint and a framework Mm -hmm. standpoint, not actually not at all from a process standpoint. When people hear that word or hear what we're talking about, they immediately go to like, 
process. This is the process I want them to follow. No, is more of like, what are the principles that shape our thinking? How do you think about this stuff? Not uh, how you might do it, you versus me might be radically different, but they may, as long as they follow the same principles, have the same goals, that's all that matters. Yeah, Simon Sinek calls this the why, what, how framework and kind of focusing (laughs) on the why of it. Yeah, last question on on staying on this team. David, I understand that Drift was growing very fast at this early stage. In Mm -hmm. one year, I believe Drift grew from 80 to 260 people. How were you managing culture through this intense period of hyper growth? And the reason I ask this is I've heard from many managers that during this period, sometimes growth is the culture and that you're simply reacting to and not really thinking long-term during these times of intense growth. How did you help the team keep sight of the bigger picture? What is the why that you were speaking about during this period of rapid, mm. rapid growth beyond the growth itself? I will explain it, but I will say, first say that pain, lots of pain in that, you know, <laughs> went through lots of pain. So no matter what I tell you, pain. But in terms of scaling and not just being focused on growth, it goes back to the origin story. We started and it goes back to storytelling and repeating those stories of why do we exist? Why now? What are we trying to do? What is the thing that we're trying to fix in the world? What is the thing that makes no sense? And the more that we would tell that story and we continue to tell that story over and over and over again with different variations as we scale and we address new markets, so it's expanding. We use storytelling because people could internalize that as drifters, as people who worked inside a drift. And then when they would go out to go talk to people or friends or whatever who were our customer type, uh, then those people would be like, yes. That's true, right? So then it becomes a feedback loop, becomes self, it becomes self-reinforcing, right? It becomes a flywheel that happens out there, right? Yep. They're thinking it, hey, mom, mom happens to be a marketer. I'm working at this company. Here's what we're trying to do. Blah. And they could explain it simply, not uh, it's software, blah, 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 all nonsense. Just like, what is the change in the world? And they'd be like, you're right. That is broken. I deal with that every day. Flywheel starts. That makes total sense. So you've got your marketing and communication engines firing on all cylinders. Let's talk about your product and pricing approach in the early days, Mm -hmm. which is equally bonkers in my opinion. (laughs) In the early days, Drift is famous for charging people whatever they wanted to pay. Why is this a good strategy compared to, say, running a free pilot with a committed spend behind it? Mm. Yeah, I hate the free pilots. I hate free anything in the early days. Uh, though we created a free product, which is for a different reason. But like, I accidentally stumbled upon this in my company, Performable. You know, when you're chasing product market fit in the B2B world, which is very different than the B2C world. In the B2C world, the currency is attention. That's a currency you can measure. And you can measure daily active users and blah, 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 and try to figure out that you're hitting product market fit. In the B2B world, the currency is actually dollars. Are they willing to spend? When we talk about a new feature, something that they said, now I cannot use your, I love you and I love this product, but my company is different. I cannot use this product unless it has this feature because you do not understand how my company works. That's every enterprise conversation ever. So at that point I said, I hear you. Uh, We will build that. We can build that. It will cost X. And I would deliberately say some ridiculous low number. We weren't measuring what was the optimal pricing. We were measuring, do they actually care? The first thing is caring before you're optimizing pricing. Do they actually care about this thing? And what I discovered when I was doing initially that method, and they would do every single time they would do the same thing to me, they would do, okay, I'm going to talk to my manager. I'm going to talk to my team. I'll get back to this super important, blah, 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 blah. And they go away. They would never come back for that feature. Why? Because 
all of a sudden there was a cost to it versus there's no cost when you're in product market fit and you're exploring, you're talking to people and they, they somehow will give you in the B2B context because it's a personal relationship, all the attention you want. Again, exactly the opposite on the consumer side. And, but they won't give you a dollar. Like if this yeah. matters to you, you met with me five times and I asked you for $20 and I'm going to fix the problem that you say you have. Why wouldn't you give me $20? Instead of the scale of the willingness to pay, you almost like a binary approach. Even a dollar yes. willingness to pay is a very strong indicator of intent and interest. Mm-hmm. But as you think about product roadmap prioritization, total contract value frequently drives product roadmap at companies, right? The more a company mm-hmm. pays you, the, the more instance they have on your product roadmap. How did you prioritize product feedback from these early customers if the value to drift wasn't available as a reliable index to rank order customer roadmap? Yeah, I think the total contract value driving product innovation is a big, big, big mistake. Unless you're in a very small market, very, very, very small market with very, very few customers in there, and you're basically building bespoke stuff for them. In that model go do that. In a world where you're chasing a very large, which I'm assuming everyone listening to thinking about this stuff, a very large market with a very large addressable from a dollar standpoint slice that you can, you can go after. In that world, you know, the contract value should not. It should be opportunity value, not contract value. Like what if I add this thing? How do I prioritize this thing? How much bigger does my addressable market open up? How many more customers can we bring? How much more can these companies that pay us today, how much more can they scale from, you know, from a model standpoint? That's how you should prioritize things. You shouldn't prioritize things on contract value. A lot of what I say is simple, not easy. It's simple what I'm saying. Don't ever confuse that with it being easy. It will be trying and painful. What I'm telling you is still hard for me because they're paying tons of money. I have to tell them no. You know, the, you know what that feels like each day? doesn't feel good. You know, so most people, again, will give in, will fold. It's never easy. It's very hard. Adherence is very hard. Yeah, that makes total sense. Adhering to your philosophy of not chasing TCV Mm -hmm. must definitely have been hard. Okay, so you've got your marketing team doing its thing and you've got the product team iterating on product. But one other exceptional thing you did at Drift really early on is motivating brand building as a company-wide activity. Drift, I've seen become really famous for its marketable moments. (laughs) where almost the entire company participates in doing this big marketing push. And I've seen many companies, including my former companies, try to emulate that. But what I've frequently seen is teams outside of marketing and most companies shy away from, or worse, deplore marketing as an activity. How did you align non-marketing teams to participate? And you've talked about incentives being really important in the past. What kind of incentives did you drive to create this cult of marketing adrift where marketing and brand building was not an activity just for the marketing team? but mm-hmm. a company-wide effort. Yeah, I get this question a lot from bigger companies that are trying to like change their models, change how they, their approach to do this. How do we incent people? How do we get people to do it? And I, you know, I would say like, again, simple, not easy. You know how? We hired every single person using a set of leadership principles that incented that from a cultural standpoint. That's it. We didn't give them something. We didn't give them an Amazon gift card. We didn't give them like an award. We didn't ask them to do it. They did it on their own because those were the people that we self-selected for. People that wanted to not necessarily market, we didn't ask that question, but that were in line with these principles that we had that felt that from a company standpoint, that we were doing something important, that, you know, that this paradigm shift did exist, that we had a mission that we were on. Those things led to this output 
versus a set of incentives or dangling something that gets them to do stuff. So, you know, all that stuff that we did in the early days and continue to do, you know, people on the team filming videos and posting them online and sharing stuff like that. Nobody asked them to do that. They do that. You know, first time I saw them, I'm like, oh, look at all those videos they're posting. So the answer is actually pretty simple. Again, not easy. You know, in the past, people would ask me, how do you, how do you create a product team, an engineering team that talk to customers? If they didn't talk to customers, then they would not be here. It's very simple. We would not hire them. And if we hire them by mistake, they would elect to go somewhere else. Or we would elect, and that's it. It's very simple. Getting the right people on the boat. That's it. That, again, it sounds so simple. It's not. So two years in, it's 2017, and Drift has been executing on this incredible go-to-market. David, what does the category of conversational marketing and Drift as a player in the space look like in 2017? What's changed the most? Somewhere in that time, 16, 17, we created this category, conversational marketing. We were explaining this thing and we had this story and we had these early believers, but we didn't, it was amorphous. We needed to call it something and we gave it a name. It's conversational marketing. And we didn't create the change in the world. The change in the world was true already, but we were the only ones in that market. And then woke up a year later and like, wait, there's other people saying conversational marketing. Like people are saying it. And then more people, more companies keep saying it. Then Wiley comes to us and like, do you want to write a book on it? And I'm like, what? Okay, we'll write a book. Uh, and then in 18, 19, all of a sudden there's hundreds of people in that category. And Gartner recognizes it. Uh, Forrester recognizes it. Serious Decisions. All these analysts recognize it an official category. And uh, by that time, we wrote the book for Wiley on conversational marketing. Again, like Forrest Gump, like we stumbled upon it. L- make no mistake of like, oh, we had this amazing plan. Step one, step two, step three. And year, year four, uh, we're going to write a book and we'll have hundreds of people doing it. No way. Yeah, you did more than create a category in 2017. Drift became one of the fastest growing SaaS companies of all time. So you definitely uh, built the moat of brand around you as you built that uh, category. And you went on to raise $92 million more. And I've been on an incredible journey ever since. Thanks so much for retelling this incredible story, David. We now come to my favorite part of the podcast, which is the Uh rapid fire section. I ask you a series of questions and you answered them in 30 seconds or less. How does that sound? Sure. I'm going to throw you a real easy one to start here. (laughs) What is the ultimate hack to lie in sales and marketing? Is the ultimate answer to roll both functions under a CRO and call it quits? When does it make sense for marketing and sales functions to roll into one? Uh, The answer to all questions in life is it depends. Study game design. If you've ever played a game, a lot of what we're talking about, not that people are, are gameable, but a lot of that, what's gone into the thinking of why those popular games work is understanding incentives and how people think and what they're optimizing for. That's the thing to examine. Like, What are the incentives? Are the incentives misaligned? And then try everything to align those incentives within, let's say, in this case, sales, within marketing to do the right thing. If you can't do that, you know, maybe you look at having this one leader because at least that from a leadership standpoint, their incentives are aligned against one goal, right? Instead of them bickering. Uh, it depends on the leader, depends on the stage in terms of rolling in, under one leader. I've seen it work, uh, not in my companies, but in other companies, I've seen it work well, but that had to do with the leaders, very leader specific and maybe industry that they serve specific. Makes total sense. David, you say we're in the third phase of SaaS. How long does this phase of brand as they moat last? And what do you see as the next phase? Or are we in the end game of SaaS <laughs> here, David? 
Yeah. Uh, so I'd say, you know, I would look at a model outside of this and the, the model will be consumer packaged good model. That's where you saw this phase that we're in and what I compare it to. I call this the Procter & Gamble phase, right? Of building brand affinity. And in that world, you know, probably a hundred years that's lasted. It still exists, but now we're starting to see more direct to consumer versus direct to, to vendor, to distribution centers. Like, so I would look at those models. So we're in the early innings. I mean, we're like five years into this this shift. So, you know, hopefully we get 100 years. We'll see. Long days of SaaS ahead, I hope. So this next question I might remove from the podcast because I think you're going to tell me some gold that I should keep for myself. <laughs> but what are the top underexploited or hard to measure marketing channels today that are available for arbitrage? Mm -mm. They're constantly changing. For me, I look again, I look outside of our world, I look at our models and I think, how do I build a relationship with someone, right? We did the whole like ship things, send things. We still do that stuff and we're still long on those kind of things. But now we think more about like, what is the behavior of the people that we are trying to attract that we're trying to get their attention every day? I'm really long on YouTube. And if you look at what those people are doing in terms of building community, but also their communication patterns, it's wild. One of the things that I have our team studying is we do it on YouTube, but you could also do it on Twitch and some of the big influencers in some gaming categories on how they're building community, specifically the way that they communicate. Like if you look at their communication patterns, how do they communicate? How do they keep attention, right? How do you keep someone to like watch you play a game sitting here like this, playing a game for two hours. What are you doing to do that? They have a perfect system in terms of Twitch and YouTube where they can actually measure attention because they have watch time. They know exactly when people are dropping off. It is the largest test and repeat cycle that's happening right now. If you look at some of these influencers, look back at their videos from a few years ago, look at them from you know a year ago, Look at them now and you see how the pattern, communication pattern, don't get lost in the content, but like the communication pattern has changed. That has changed because they are optimizing every single day on the attention uh, information that they have. So interesting. So it almost sounds like less than the channel that's available for arbitrage, the mechanism for being able to observe how, what keeps people's attention and iterate rapidly on that. Totally, it totally. To me like it's the future here. Amazing. You, you should look at TikTok as well. Like, I'm not telling people to use that as a marketing channel. Look at it from like, what are the patterns that they're doing? Because that's an even crazier channel in that you're largely the victim of an algorithm in terms of whether you get attention or not versus YouTube or IG where you may build up a following. This is like people randomly stumbling upon your content. Amazing. David, what book were you reading that helped you manage drift through these early years that you think is invaluable to read as a manager today? Um, you know, I go back to everything by Drucker. So I meet, you know, managing oneself, the essential executive, you know, like all that kind of stuff. So I read that stuff from a understanding oneself and then team standpoint. But, you know, because we come from SAS, Jason Lemkin's book, From Impossible to Inevitable, was the most important thing that I think we read. And I don't think we learned anything new from it. What we saw from it was that he laid things out in terms of the book from a scale standpoint, when you're zero to 1 million, when you're 1 million to 10 million, whatever. And he laid down a set of rules that he learned from other people who have gone, again, pattern matching. When that phase, what is normal? Basically, what he's doing for each phase is providing something that none of us had before, which is context. What should it look like in this phase? 
And it's not rules, it's not a formula, but, oh, okay, that's normal to do this kind of, in this phase, it's sort of normal uh, to do this phase. Okay, I shouldn't be freaking out. This is like what happens. And if we do this, maybe we make it to the next stage. So in SaaS, I'd say that book is, is very helpful. The context, love that. Well, there you have it, David. It's been so inspiring watching Drift change the game in sales and marketing. Thanks so much for being open to sharing your journey with me here today. Really looking forward to following your and Drift's journey in the years ahead. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was a great, great, fun podcast for me, I will say. Uh, I love your approach. Super thoughtful. Thank you for that. That was David Cancel talking about the incredible story of change at Drift. Thanks for tuning into the Mavis of Change podcast. This episode was brought to you by Aria. Composition design, administration, and communication is getting incredibly hard as the workforce gets more distributed and business needs change faster than ever before. Aria brings science and automation to the new field of agile compensation management. Visit ariaworks.com to learn more.